Being in a good mood is really great, and most languages have lots of words to describe the experience, like happy, cheerful, joyful, and so on. The same goes for the languages of the Bible. In ancient biblical Hebrew, there's a variety of words, like simcha, sason, or gil. In the Greek New Testament, there's kara, euphrasune, or agaliasis. Each word has its own unique nuance, but they all basically refer to the feeling of joy and happiness. Now what makes these biblical joy words interesting is noticing the kinds of things that bring happiness and also seeing how joy is a key theme that runs through the whole story of the Bible. Let's start with sources of joy. On page one of the Bible, God says that this world is very good. And so naturally, people find joy in beautiful and good things of life, like growing flocks or an abundant harvest on the hills. The poet of Psalm 104 says a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. People find joy at a wedding or in their children. There's even a Hebrew proverb that compares the joy that perfume brings to your nose with the joy a good friend brings to your heart. However, human history isn't just a joy fest. The biblical story shows how we live in a world that's been corrupted by our own selfishness. It's marked by death and loss. And this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. It's an attitude God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So when the Israelites were suffering from slavery in Egypt, God raised up Moses to lead them into freedom. And the first thing the Israelites did was sing for joy. Even though they were in the middle of a desert, they were vulnerable, the promised land was still far away, they rejoiced anyway. Later biblical poets looked back on this story and they remembered how the Lord caused his people to leave with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. This joy in the wilderness, this was a defining moment, a way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. This theme appears later in Israel's story, when Israel suffered under the oppression of foreign empires. The prophet Isaiah looked for a day when God would raise up a new deliverer like Moses. That's when those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts, with eternal joy crowning their heads. Happiness and joy will overtake them. And while the Israelites wait they chose joy to anticipate their future redemption. This is why it's significant that when Jesus of Nazareth was born, it was announced as good news that brings great joy. We're told that Jesus himself rejoiced and gave thanks to God his Father when he began to announce the kingdom of God. He even taught his followers the same joy in the wilderness, saying, when people reject you or persecute you for following me, rejoice, be very glad, because your reward is great in heaven. After his death and resurrection, Jesus commissioned his followers to go out and announce the good news that he was the risen king of the world. And as they did so, the early Christian communities were known for being full of joy, even when they were persecuted. Like when the Apostle Paul was sitting in a dirty Roman prison, he could say that he's chosen joy, even if he gets executed. He called this the joy of faith, or joy in the Lord. He believed it was the gift of God's spirit, a sign that Jesus' presence is with you, inspiring hope in the midst of hardship. And when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable in the darkest of circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that you ignore or suppress your sorrow. That's not healthy or necessary. Paul often expressed his grief about missing loved ones or losing friends or his own freedom. He called it being full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. As he acknowledged his pain, he also made a choice to trust 
Jesus, that his loss wouldn't be the final word. This is very different from the trite advice to turn that frown upside down. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. And that's what biblical joy is all about. I was just going to wait it out. Um, and most importantly, I'm loved by Jesus and really thankful that uh, there's a different kind of love um, when we're talking about his love for me than uh, my love for pizza, as was explained in the video. Uh, we're going to start in John 3.16, which is a pretty uh, familiar verse, potentially, to many of you. And it goes something like this. We can pull up the slide. For God was so mad at the world that he, is that how it goes? Is it, did I get, I messed it up? Uh, or does it go, is it God so angry at the world? God was so ridiculously frustrated with the brokenness of the world. No, how's it go? You can read it with me. For God so loved, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I did that on purpose just so that we could for a second stop and think about how, <laughs> how bonkers this verse is. Like, it is crazy. I mean, Kobe already kind of set us up for that, uh, for, for, for where we're going when he talked about kind of a, a strange verse to start on, on the last Sunday before Christmas, but... Jesus calls us to love our enemies. And um, we have a story of God creating a perfect world. People are expected and get to dwell with him. They go rogue. They defy God and his plan. And what is Jesus's, and what is God's response? What is God's response? He says, okay, you rogue people, you rogue bunch, I see your defiance, and I'm going to defy your defiance with a defiant love. That's crazy. That's, it's bonkers verse. And it's, uh, it leads us to the, to the song we sang right before all the craziness of, of the preschoolers here when we sang, uh, What Child Is This? It's a powerful line for a Christmas carol. You look at the manger, what child is this? What kind of king would lay in a manger. What, what kind of child is this? If a king, like you said, Kobe, if a king were to come into a kingdom that has completely turned away against him, we'd think he'd come in flexing his power, right? Riding in with whatever, the cavalry or the modern equivalent of that. But instead of a public declaration of war and taking it all back by force, this king, like my older brother Don prayed this morning with us here, he said, spends the first nine months as a fetus in the womb of a woman and the first few hours in a donkey saliva covered manger. Like that is, I'm just going to say, we're going to call that a defiant love. A defiant love. We've talked uh, over the last few weeks, we've talked about um, this defiance in a positive sense. 
Like, we are called to a defiant posture. Uh, we called our sermon series a defiant Christmas. And in um, a culture of fear that we want to have and are invited to defiant, def, uh, defiant hope, um, that in a, um, uh, a culture of anxiety, we're invited to a defiant peace. In a culture of discouragement, we're invited to a defiant joy. And today, in a culture of striving, polarization, we're invited to a defiant love. I came across this awesome story that I think like, will invite us into this really well. But it's about, it's, it's about jazz. And I know we're in the Northwest, the birthplace of grunge and Nirvana and Pearl Jam, but, but jazz was before that, okay? So just bear with me. I actually, I love jazz. And I think the reason I love jazz is because when I was 15, I just happened to meet someone. Um, I actually mentioned him a few weeks ago. He's a, a guy from Serbia. He came, he came, he was like one of the first people that I just saw really um, ex- just living life fully for Jesus and also for jazz. And so I was like, I, it was part of my discipleship was jazz. So that's just a little bit of my back, background. But I heard this story, a guy named Winton Marsalis. He is a famous, you might have heard of him. He's a famous trumpeter, um, 80s, 90s. Around the 2000s, Winton Marsalis, he was in New York, jazz player, kind of goes like off the radar. Like no one knows where he is. And what, after a few years, what began happening is, I'm going to call him Winton. Winton uh, would like appear at like a tiny little jazz club unannounced, kind of just slip in and play a show. And then they wouldn't hear about it again for months. And he would just start doing this. And one guy, a journalist, he actually wrote an article, you can look it up on, uh, I think it was The Atlantic, look up a guy named, um, what was his name? Do I have his name? The journalist? David Haidu. David Haidu, he's, he goes into one of these little venues. He's actually writing an article on something completely different. And uh, he sees this little, like, no-name band playing. And there's this trumpeter in the corner with his head down. And he's like, oh, man, is, is this, is this, Win-? he turns over to someone and says, is that Winston Marsalis? And the, guy, the guy's like, surely not. Like, but then he listens. And, and sure enough, the next song, this other band kind of comes to the side, and he starts playing, Winton comes to the middle, and he pl- starts playing this jazz standard, pop standard too. I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. You can look it up. Frank Sinatra did it, Bing Crosby. So this famous song, and Winton, by himself, he's a trumpeter, he's not a keyboard player, he's, by himself, he starts playing this standard, and everyone's like, it is him. How did this happen? This is amazing. And he just, he, he's, he's, uh, He's just flowing by himself. Everybody, all the chatter stops. It was kind of like people are doing their work and stuff. People are closing laptops. People are like, this is a moment. This is amazing. And he gets down to like the last long notes of the song. You could hear a pin drop. And someone's cell phone goes off in the back of the room. A little like... And, and this guy, David, he, writing, he just writes in his journal, magic ruined. <laughs> magic ruined. Like, the, in the moment, and everyone's just feeling, oh, okay. They're feeling awkward, so people start laughing. And, and now, 
some of you are musicians or, or you've been to concerts, often what happens in these moments, when there's that sacred moment, I, I've been on this side of the stage and that side, of the stage. often the people up here are like, come on, dude. Like they kind of shame the person out of it or they're like, they try to make a joke or something and people are like, get out of here, you're an enemy of jazz. You know, um, this is what happens. It's really awkward, people are laughing, magic is ruined, magic is lost. And then Winton, he does not shame him. I assume he probably smiles and he starts playing. Because he's Winton, he just like kills it, same key. And everyone's like, oh, they kind of laugh, like good, like tension resolved a little bit, but he goes further than that. He plays it again, and then they're like, what's he, what he doing? And he starts, he takes the song he was already playing, and he starts weaving in this little crass 8-bit ringtone into this jazz masterpiece, and the room goes silent again. Magic reclaimed. People are like, this, what are we experiencing? And in fact... The magic that was before is now only heightened more because of this broken thing that happened and the genius of the master who says, can't defy me, I'll take this and I'll make it even better. When I heard that story, I was like, come on, there is not a better description of what the father does with our stories. He, he writes this masterpiece, we our cell phones go off, so to speak. We completely defy his aim. And what does he do? He takes our rebellion, he takes our brokenness, and he says, I will weave an even better story. I will weave even something greater. You cannot ruin the magic of God's story. If it's up to him. You can if you keep it in your own hands. But if you allow God's defiant love to work in your story, he redeems it all. God says, I will defy your defiance with a defiant love. You can't come up with that stuff. It's amazing. So we're actually not going to just look at John 3.16. Our text for today is, um, I would say it's a poem describing the Father's defiant love, and it's in Philippians 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Philippians 2. Open up your phone, because we're going to be looking at the text. I got it right here. Philippians 2. Now, Philippians 2 is a poem describing this defiant love that comes to us in a manger and then dies on the cross. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi, but it's also a letter to us, Soma, Tacoma. And um, the first few verses, uh, if you have Philippians 2 open, they could be summarized like this. If we have this slide up here, uh, this is my summary. There's a lot more in those verses, but it's nothing less than this. It's basically, uh, if there is any comfort from his love, if you are experiencing any comfort from the love of Jesus, as we kind of just reminded ourselves of through the story of Winton. So if any of that captures your heart, like, wow, 
That's a defiant love. Then have the same love. That's how you could summarize those first five verses. If, if his love has gripped you, you love the same way. Not love the same things. You have the same posture. You have the same heart. So I'm going to read those first five verses, and then we'll get to the poem. So this is the setup. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I read that quickly because we could spend weeks on that, and we're actually going to spend the next 30 minutes on what's coming. Okay, So the summary of what I just read is that slide. If there's any love, have the same love. If, if this is true, then you have the same mindset. And now let's slow down and read this incredible poem about the defiant love of Jesus. Jesus, who being in the very, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can pray with me. Jesus, already we're just taken back at the ridiculous upside-down nature of your response to rebellion, your response to brokenness, a defiant love, comes into the world, lands in a manger, and is obedient to, to death. So we need your help, because that is not my go-to posture when I wake up often. And yet you say, if you've received any comfort from love, that you actually invite us to live this way. So... We're a family right now, and we just ask that you, again, that's why we're here, would remake us into your image and give us your posture. Amen. So, I think it's already been said implicitly, potentially explicitly. Let's make it clear. Who did Jesus die for? The world, and the world is like, it's, he died for his enemies. And uh, the reason I say that is because potentially hope, like I'm already moved, this is amazing, and it could be really easy to just look around and say, guys, 
let's just make this simple. Let's love each other. And, and this, this letter is written to a church, a local church in, in Philippians, and they had some squabbling going on, and so it is, it is like applicable, but um, it's a good word, squabbling. My kids started using it. It's because it's of Bluey. Do you guys, did you know that? How did you guys know that? There's a show called Bluey. If you have kids under five years old, it's amazing. And they keep introducing this good language. So they're squabbling in the church. And, and this is totally applicable. And we need this. Because we are not always all absolutely on the same page. But it goes further than that. Because that poem we just read is about Jesus dying for his enemies. And I just want to make sure we're starting there. Romans 5 spends a, a few verses on this just to make sure it's really clear. You can turn there if you want, but I'll just highlight a few verses. Verse 6 in Romans 5. I love this verse. You see, at just the right time, as if there is like any other time, Jesus does things in the right time. At just the, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 makes it really explicit. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him. So as we are like being invited into defiant love, I'm gonna, a few times today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like ask you to like, you know, kind of do a little inventory of your enemies. Because we actually have them, like Kobe, Kobe said. So um, I waited till now to get the reveal of what love defies, because it's kind of a big word that we really don't use, and I won't use that much today. But love defies enmity, okay? Enmity. That's where we're going today. Love defies enmity. Enmity, um, did I put the definition up there? Uh, one of the uh, dictionary definitions, a feeling or condition of hostility, ill will, animosity, antagonism, which coincidentally is also the tagline for 2021. <laughs> that is a lot of what we've experienced over the last 18 months as the world, not just America, but the world has become more polarized. I mean, it's like, how's 2021? Well, a lot of feelings, hostility, ill will, animosity, antagonism. That's, that's a lot of what we're experiencing, whether you turn on the news or whether you start engaging with family members that you didn't know thought this about this or thought this about this. Um, defiant love, three things we're going to look at in these verses. Verse 6, verse 7, verse 8. Three things. Defiant love leads us downward. So not upward. This upward mobility that the world's obsessed with. Defiant love leads us downward. Uh, defiant love invites us, calls us to enter into the mess of other people, and defiant love ultimately like actually does cost us our life. Those are the three things. So leads downward. Um, there's a poem by Edward Caswell. It goes like this. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. <laughs> this is really good. Lo, with, lo within a manger lies he who built the starry skies, sacred infant, all divine, what a tender love was thine. Thus to come from highest bliss down to such a world as this. We, we, already, get, we already get so much of Christ's heart before he's ever said a word. It's 
coming down and laying down the manger. Verse 6 that um, we're centering this on, if, you're, if you have Philippians 2 open, it's that verse that says, Jesus did not consider equality with God something the NIV, a translation called the NIV says to be, that he didn't consider it something to be used to his own advantage. That's one of the translations, that equality. Another one that you might be familiar with is he didn't consider that equality something to be grasped. It's a strange phrase, but it's actually kind of a, a good one. Um, and the reason is because the way I want to phrase this is in our in, is our posture, as the 2021 is the way it is, is my posture more of a grasper or of a giver? Am I more of a grasper or a giver? Um, a guy named Tony Marita, just when commenting on this um, passage, he, he kind of came up with uh, these two lists, one of Adam and one of Jesus, kind of one being the grasper, one being the giver. Do I have that, Matt? Do you, do you see that somewhere? It's like a long list, two lists. There we go. Hopefully you can read this. So I'm going to read this. I'm going to keep going back and forth. A posture of a grasper versus a posture of a, of a giver. Adam, we are all like Adam, but Adam, the actual literal uh, Adam here, look what we have. Adam the grasper, made in God's image. Jesus was God. So that's just like kind of stating where we're starting from, okay? Jesus actually is God. Adam, the grasper, wants to, be, wants to be like God, become like God. Jesus became man. Adam, the grasper, wants to exalt himself. Jesus, the giver, empties himself. Adam, the grasper, discontent with being God's servant. Jesus assumed the form of a slave. Adam, the grasper, rejected God's word. Jesus, the giver, obeyed God's word. Adam, the grasper, succumbed to temptation. Jesus, the giver, overcame temptation and crushed the temper, tempter. Adam, the grasper, brought a curse on the world. Jesus, the giver, took the curse for the world. Adam, the grasper, was cursed and exiled, and Jesus, the giver, was exalted and lifted up. So, are you a grasper or a giver? I know what you want to be. Am I a grasper or a giver? Jesus, in his perfection, he is absolutely perfect. He takes on the posture of defiant love and gives. Now I'm going to do a little exercise, and this is really all I got for this first point. Um, let's just for a second pretend that you are perfect. Okay? Like I'm seriously giving you permission to pretend that you actually are the perfect spouse. You are perfect. You actually are the perfect daughter. So just so I'm clear, I'm not talking about everyone. I'm saying you're a perfect spouse and your spouse is messed up. You are the perfect daughter and your parents are not awesome. Uh, you have crazy neighbors, but you're actually the perfect neighbor. Um, what else do I have here? Oh, politics. Somehow you've politically totally nailed it. Like you've got it all the way. You've, you're exactly right on every issue. And everyone around you is wrong. Keep following with me. I really, like you really are right. Let's go deeper. Pandemically, politically, you've totally figured this thing out. Like you exact, you know better than everybody else how 
COVID works, how vaccines work, and you understand God's plan in this whole thing, you guys are like, stop, just, I don't know where this is going. <laughs> Here's my point. Everything I just described literally is Jesus' reality. He is absolutely perfect, and even though that's his reality, he doesn't have the posture of a grasper, but a giver. That is crazy to me. So now let's think about this for a second. In your relationship with your imperfect spouse, even if you are perfect, you have no right, according to this poem, to grasp at anything. Well, that'll mess you up. Politically, like even if you had this pandemic completely nailed down, you have no right to shame somebody else. You have to have the posture of a giver. That is crazy to me. That, that is what this passage is telling us. If you've received his love, have this kind of love. Now, there's a lot of nuancing of what that looks like, but I'm talking about the posture of my heart because I know, I know that in that list that I just gave, Dawson Jones often takes the high ground and says, well, I do have something that you need to hear and let me, let, let me tell you. And depending on who it is, and my poor wife probably gets the most real of my heart, people experience a grasper, not a giver. Jesus, in his perfection, has a defiant love. He defies our natural tendency to say, I, I really think I got this one down. I think you're wrong, and we're going to fight this one out. It's crazy. So just pause uh, there. And potentially, if there's anything that kind of came up, we just listed a few categories. Take a deep breath. And ask Jesus to do something crazy, supernatural, to give you his heart. We're going to keep going. We'll kind of keep going in circles around this, whether you want to or not. That's just kind of what I have planned. So... The second one is defiant love. In, go ahead, Don. You want some time? I am going to take as much time until you tell me that there's enough time. You, t you tell me when to go on, okay? I'm serious. That's great. If you can't hear Don, he's saying, hey, you, you asked us to give, have some time to pray. You need to give us a little bit more time. So we're going to take a little bit more time. Don, you, you give me the thumbs up when we're good to go. It's good. Defiant love is always downward. It's always giver, not grasping. Um, enters into the mess. That's the second one. So verse 7. So instead of 
something else going up. Rather, Jesus makes himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. I didn't really mention this, but there's some theological terms to each of these things. That first one was renunciation. This one is the incarnation. Jesus becomes a human. He empties himself. He becomes nothing. Uh, the, that, this defiant, what I'm calling a defiant poem, these, these six verses or so, it's shaped like a V. It kind of has the shape of a V like uh, this right here. Verse 5 through 8 is him going down, 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 give, 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 to the point of death on the cross. That's like the bottom. And then he's going to be, he has been lifted up. Okay? But um, right now we're focusing on this downward mobility that Jesus does and Jesus calls, calls us to. There's some different phrases, again, different translations. One says that he becomes nothing. Another one is he empties himself. And I'm going to let C.S. Lewis, in the way that he can, um, give us a good description of what that really means. In his book, Miracles, C.S. Lewis claims that the central miracle asserted by Christians um, is the incarnation. That's like the central miracle. So here's his quote about this V-shaped reality. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being. He comes down into time and into space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. So one has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or, he gives us one other visual, or one may think of a diver, first reducing himself to nakedness, and then glancing in midair, then goes down with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure, into death, into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to rescue. Isn't that a good visual? <laughs> Friend, Jesus really loves you. He really loves you. He so ridiculously desperately loves you. He has a defiant love for you. Why does he do this? Why does he love you? The video kind of touched on it. Deuteronomy 6 says, just because he loves you, it's his nature. Deuteronomy 6 says, God loves you because he loves you. Every night, you probably heard me say this, I tell my girls, why do I love you? They say, because you love us. Because I want them to get that thing that we, you can't escape the Father's love. But what he's done to us, he wants to do through us. 
So as we're gripped again with that picture of Jesus going to the slimy depths, bursting out to save you, he wants to do that through you. So I'm going to go back to zone, uncomfortable zone and step on toes. Here we go. Two things, applications, um, two big words, deconstruction and the pandemic. Deconstruction first, that's a big word. If you have no idea what that means, it's totally okay. It's being tossed around in various ways. Basically, right now, I think, I think this anecdotally because I'm talking to people, sitting to people, talking, talking through their stories. There's a lot of people that are working through their faith. That's always been the case. That's always been the case. But I think over the last five years with, with um, the very good uh, revealing of a lot of abuse of power and a lot of um, brokenness in cultures and churches. And then I think you couple that with um, a pandemic where everyone feels alone. A lot of people are working through their faith, okay? And some people have called this deconstruction. And we're, we'll, hopefully this year I want to give some time, next year, time to that. I'm not going to do a lot of it today. But what's really grieved me, if you're tracking with me a little bit, is that as people are working through the, their faith, and what I mean by that, it could be anything from, on the spectrum from like, I don't really know if I fit into this kind of church family to, man, I'm really struggling with some uh, submitting to any sort of spiritual authority or to like, I don't know if I believe in Jesus anymore at all. So it could be any of that. What I've often heard over the last few years or months even is, is a church that doesn't know what to do with that. And somehow like churches and church leaders being threatened by that which is really bad. That's not good. That's, that's a problem. Listen, if what I just described threatens you, just go back and read C.S. Lewis's passage. You're fine. And the more than fine, you are actually, as you've been rescued from the depths, you are called to go into these depths with that person and say, hey, let's talk about this. I want to hear your story. I want to know. What it is. And you can, just as Jesus incarnates into our mess, you can enter into someone's mess with them and not be messed up about it. You can be listening. You, you might actually have to own a lot of things, especially if you're in my shoes, like someone who's in leadership. So that's just one example. We enter into people's messes because we've been redeemed from a mess. We're not threatened by it all, and we can live humbly, we can repent, and we can walk alongside people. And that's what I, I hope we have, church family, that kind of culture. Because there's a lot of people in Tacoma that do not need churches telling, kicking them while they're working through their faith. And then, yeah, Jesus actually help us do that. Like, I, it's easier preached than done, um, but help us do that. Pandemic-wise, and I told you I'm going to step on some toes. This is all I'm saying. We, even in our body, we have different opinions. Um, I had the privilege of sitting with a family this week who embodied defiant love. We have some different opinions on the pandemic. I had the best meal of my year two nights ago or three nights ago. I can't remember what it was. It was this crab pasta, homemade noodles. There was like amazing drinks. There was like a, a few courses and there was an embodiment, this, this, we had different opinions, but this, this, this family chose the humble posture of defiant love. We need to talk some things out, but we can do it in a way that we, we 
we are not against each other, but rather, just like that picture of the strong man that goes down, I am with you trying to figure this out. And we want to submit to Jesus together. So I just ask you, like, if, you are, if you're struggling, and I know you are, if someone here, everyone here, somebody else rubs them the wrong way, whether they're in this room or other, in terms of their posture on the pandemic, I know it. And if not, then help me understand how you have found such peace. Because <laughs> I would appreciate it. I'm not saying there are not some things that need to be configured. I'm not configured, figured out. I'm not saying that there are certain conspiracy theories that do need to be shut down. And some, the right and the left need a reckoning, okay? I, I'm, I'm saying way too much here. I'm <laughs> off the top of my head. This is not good. Stop. I do think, though, like, guys, it's, 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 a, it's a uniquely strange cycle that really hasn't happened since the 60s, in my opinion, where it's going, it just keeps going further right and further left. People are getting more divided. In the church, we got to be a place of defiant love. It doesn't mean we're not after truth, but it does mean that we never forsake the posture of a giver. That's all I'm saying, okay? Dang it. I wrote down here, don't go too much. Don't, don't do... <laughs> I said some things. Listen, write the email today, look at it tomorrow, ask a friend, and then send it to me, okay? <laughs> That's all I'm asking. Thanks. Duh, the, so, okay. Um, I'm like missing a page of my notes. You're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> Found it. Sorry. So, <clears throat> here's the prayer. And this is not, we're going to not pause as much right here. But here's my invitation to you. In light of this passage, in light of this poem, here's our morning prayer. Jesus, today, help me become nothing. Help me empty myself. Help me become a slave. Like that should be our normal prayer. That should be our normal prayer. You might be like, okay, that's a lot. How far down should we go? I'm glad you asked. Verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, so he can add one more thing, help me die today. That's where we're supposed to go with people. Help me die. So the last point I have, and it really is the last one, and it is briefer. Defiant love, I think according to the New Testament, really does cost you your life. It, it asks you to die. Sometimes literally and every time in the way that Galatians 5 describes it. Lo loving our enemies is going to feel like dying. It does. Because loving your enemies, everything I just described, if you're feeling some of that tension and you know it's going to mean you're going to feel misunderstood, you're not going to get all this stuff across, it feels like dying. We love Galatians 5, 22 and 23. This is uh, Galatians 5, those two verses. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. We love that list. Yes, Jesus, help us be that list. We need that. We need that defiant list. Listen to verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Doing that 
literally will feel like death every day. You are going cru- to you have to crucify the flesh to live that way. Crucify the flesh. You can only do this if you've been gripped by the defiant love of God, if you've been filled with the spirit of Jesus. Now I have I have one last place I want to go with this because this whole the whole time we're kind of making the assumption that you're experiencing the love of God. I want to say again, you cannot live this way if you've never been saved by the love of God. And then for those of us who have turned to Jesus and are following him, you still can't live this way if daily you're not gripped by the love of God. By the love of God. There might be some of us in the room when I said that first part of Philippians, that if there's any comfort from love, and you're like, honestly, I have not felt it for a while. I'm not feeling comfort from his love. I have good news for you. The Bible is full of verses for you to pray. One of them is Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, starting in verse 14, I have it up on the screen. This is the prayer of God's people of Zion. They are saying, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. So if you're like, I don't feel it, that's okay. You can pray this right now. The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. I I had this moment this week. I read a news story I'm not going to share, and I was just so done. I had a few hard meetings, and then I read this random news story from a different country in the world, and I was like, where are you? This is too much. You have forsaken me. Verse 15 is God's response. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget... I will not forget you. My wife is still breastfeeding. She does not forget. Her very body reminds her, you need to feed your child. Go back. Go back, Matt, sorry. Look what God is saying. In our minds, we're like, no, the mother would never forget. He's saying, no, she'll actually forget occasionally. I go further. I will never forget you. I will never forget you. I will always love you. And we could stop there. That's really good news. He goes further. That wasn't enough. Look at verse 16. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's cool. What does that mean exactly? Well, Um, it was common at the time this was written for a name of a master to be tattooed on its slaves. Master has some slaves, 
common thing, horrible thing, tattoo the name of the master on the slaves. What is God saying? The opposite. You would never, in that context, you, could, like, you would never have a master who's like, go ahead, tattoo my, all my slaves. Like, he, he needs to keep his hands clean. Unless it's terrible imagery, it's a terrible thing. The master would never put the names of his slaves. This is all backwards. We just read about Jesus in Philippians 2. What's the posture he takes? The posture of a servant. Some translations translate it, the posture of a slave. Jesus takes on the posture of a slave and puts all our names on his hands. And it doesn't say tattoo, does it? It says engraved. That's a word that means what it means. It literally means, it doesn't mean tattoo. It means cut into the flesh of the hands. Like he's, he's saying, your moms sometimes forget their kids. I will never forget my kids. And just so you don't think I'm all talk, he sends his son to become a baby in a manger and engraves all our names in his hands when he gets his hands pierced as he dies on the cross. That's what it looks like to be a giver and not a grasper. And Paul, in his letter, says, that's your mind, church. So be comforted if you feel broken. That is how much God loves you. And be sent out with that love uh, Tacoma needs a defiant love. To paraphrase Michelle Obama, when when the culture tries to go up and high, we go low, we die. We die. We we love. Um, We're going to do communion here in a second. But before we do that, I wanted to to invite uh, Krista up. Krista has been sketching, drawing um, these little kind of prophetic words on, uh, on a little slip of paper for the last four weeks, and she drew something to illustrate what God's calling us to in Philippians 2. I think you're, I got you. Oh, your husband's got you. I'm gonna let him do the serving. Okay. It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. What is the law? His law is love and his gospel is peace. For out of Zion shall go forth love and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. 
and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So this is a picture I did this week of a blacksmith uh, hard at work um, beating weapons that there is no longer use for. Um, and behind him uh, are people working in the field, planting trees and cultivating life crops for other people. And I, I don't know if you can tell, it's a little small from here, but one of the people planting a tree has an infant on her back. And so the idea is like, it's, it's being done not just for them, but for the vulnerable among them as well. Um, and then, I don't know if you can also tell, but there's, the, among the weapons, I use different types of styles of weapons that would have been used by different nations that would have been warring against one another. So they've, mm. they're, they're all dumped in the same place and they're all being put to, to the same end, which will be for, for flourishing of life, so. Um, and one extra detail that's actually, I, I made it after I sent this image to Dawson, but um, I, think, I think we'll probably hang these up maybe for Christmas Eve, but the, I, Kobe suggested I add a little scar to the blacksmith as just like a little extra detail of like, mm. he, he was, used to be a soldier fighting against people and now he's working to to love people so that's the sketch thank you yeah we're hoping uh krista's drawn four of these for defiant hope defiant peace defiant joy defiant love and we're hoping to get um we are working on making a like a print that you guys can each take home um, as a gift. I'm not going to promise it as a Christmas gift, but potentially. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I don't know where you are. Some of us just need to be swept up in that song I talked about at the beginning. The great, the great musician, uh, our little cell phones go off, and some of us need to say, God, like, bring me back into the story of your defiant love. Uh, some of us need to to reflect on the fact that our hearts need um, repenting and humbling because we have had a posture of, of, uh, of opposition. Um, and some of us need, just, need to be, um, just need to be comforted by the love of the Father whose comfort is greater than that of a mother for her kids. Um, all of us eventually are sent out to love like this. Uh, the way I wanted us to do communion today is a way is, that's very common to us. We haven't done it in a while, though. I wanted to ask you, um, Mark, you can go ahead and bring the communion elements in. Ask us actually to group up. Uh, we usually do this in our missional communities. I know a lot of leaders are out today. You can raise your hand if you need some elements, okay? So maybe find somebody that, uh, that you know, or maybe you see someone you don't know. If this isn't comfortable to you, or if you're just like, no, today it's just me. I need to do this with, with Jesus. That's okay. Just kind of lean down. People will take a hint. Um, if uh, you're still on a journey, don't come to the table just, just yet. If you're still like, 
in that place of figuring out where you stand with Jesus, um, it's okay for you to, to just wait this one out. I, I was going to ask um, the Odmans back, back there, if you guys would just maybe go into that light over there, if anyone is kind of lonely and like, well, I want to do this with somebody. I don't, I'm not a part of a missional community, whatever those are. Um, you can go back there. And then I was going to ask uh, Kobe and Krista, I'll come down here with you guys. If anyone else wants to join us or wants to join them, um, you can. But hey, and by the way, as, as, as heavy or beautiful or uplifting as the message is, this communion piece can always be a light thing. It's a heavy thing, but it's also just a beautiful thing. We're reminded of what Jesus did. The fact that our, our names are engraved on his hands. So don't feel like this has to be this hushed up time. Feel free to like talk and laugh the way we do this. We circle up, um, we pray. We pray in a way that we respond to the message that was given, and then, um, and then we take the elements. So uh, I'll invite those who feel comfortable to just stand up, just so there's a little bit of movement. Turn to somebody uh, right now, if that's okay. I invite you guys to do that. I'm gonna, um, uh, we'll come up and we'll, we'll sing after that. And again, totally feel free to just bow your head if you're not, not into this. The rest of us stand up, lean around talk to somebody, and let's remember what Jesus did. (laughs) 